I wanted you to see the world that we're in today as we enter into 1 Samuel again. So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about En Gedi, but that's where we are. So you get this idea of this arid, dry land that's an oasis, but yet quite dry. You know, it's, it's when you read Psalm 63, which we'll hear again, uh, it makes more sense when you see the land, what David is saying. As we uh, begin today, uh, among the many motivational uh, sayings that I've run into on the internet, perhaps one of my favorite, is always be yourself. Unless you can be Batman, then always be Batman, which I think is just a great statement, because uh, I enjoy Batman as much as anybody. But it's interesting, uh, always be yourself, uh, and the motivational statements that we can run into uh, online and other places I don't know if you ever think about it, but we're, we're always in the process not of being static in life, but of becoming. We're, we're, not, we're not ever really the same thing, even tomorrow, as we were today. We're always in the process of becoming something. Now, perhaps that's something desirable, and perhaps it's falling away from things that are desirable, but this has been a philosophical topic for ages and ages, that we're something different tomorrow than we were today, and then we were yesterday, we're always in the process of becoming. Whether it's something like becoming more patient in life, or perhaps less patient, we're becoming one of those things. Whether we're becoming more humble or less humble, more mature or less mature, maybe we're becoming more loving, less loving, more just, less just, more sincere or less. You get the idea, but we're always becoming something. Maybe we could even say we're unbecoming something in some cases. And, and we're shaped. We're shaped by experiences very clearly. But, but quite frankly, that they can only take part of the blame for who we are. We're shaped by our reaction to those experiences, really. Yeah, the experiences have something, but we are shaped in this life by how we respond to what happens in this world. And the point that I want to get at today as we dig into 1 Samuel more and we, we get to this point where we're contrasting Samuel and, excuse me, King Saul and David. Got to get my right S there. As we're contrasting these two is that godly character matters and that godly character is a goal or should be and godly character is not accidental. It doesn't just happen because of the experiences that you're in. We're either moving towards it or we're moving away from it, but it's not an accident. It's intentional. It has to be intentional on our part. And we should recognize this morning that God created you and me, and God created you and me with the intent that we would grow and become who he wants us to be. We didn't come out of the womb ready to go exactly as God intended. Now, God created us. That doesn't negate that fact. But who we are today will be different tomorrow. Will it be more like God? And as we understand it uh, through Jesus Christ, more like Christ. Or will I tomorrow be less like Christ? Godly character is not accidental. It must be formed. It takes something of intent on our part and direction on our part. But it's essential if we're going to have communion with our Creator, and if you're going to pick out the goals that you have in life of why you're here and why you exist, this should top the chart as one of the top things. We, we exist to glorify God. We exist to be in communion with our Creator. Anything less is less as far as goals are concerned. 
We don't just exist to be happy or to just do what we want. Those are fine short-term goals in some ways. No, we exist to commune with our Creator and to bring glory to Him. That's why we're here. And so we need to become more like God in that way, to create, to foment in us godly character. And what we're going to see today, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 24. If you're following along, that's where we're going to stick. Um, I've got a couple of the verses I can bring in. But 1 Samuel 24 is, if, you're, if you've got your Bible open or your, your uh, media device open, that's where we're going to be. Um, and we're going to see that David, we can kind of catch his character today, that he is being formed in the right direction. And Saul reveals to us rather ungodly formation by this point in his life. And you can see that by the actions that they make, and we'll add in a couple of the psalms that David writes during this period to get an impression of of David's heart in this too. And so as we look at Psalm 24, we'll see 1 through 4 first, and we see that David, as we heard from the scripture reading this morning, he's on the run. He's got 600 men with him. Saul is trying to kill him. Saul has a spy network out and other people who would try and do that work as well. If not kill, at least capture him so Saul can kill David. David is clearly being perceived as a threat to Saul, to the kingdom, to the throne. And so David has been hiding. Saul had to take a break in his chase for David to go pursue the Philistines, which caused an issue. And now here we're back on the chase. Psalm, or 1 Samuel 24, starting in verse 1. It says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. That dry place that we just saw. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pen along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David's hiding out in these uh, caves, essentially. They were kind of sheep caves of what they were used for, where you could put your whole herd in there, and then a shepherd could lay as the gate at the entrance to the cave, and the sheep would be protected. David's hiding in there as if like a sheep in this case. And David, let's just be clear, is being pursued, but he's being unjustly pursued pursued. He's not a threat. God has anointed him, yes, but you can see in his character throughout this story, he was never going to kill Saul. He was never going to take it into his own hands to take Saul off the throne. That was God's work, not David's work. Saul has been misinformed, and we discover that along the way as you read this story. But Saul... We, we get an interesting uh, moment in Saul's life. We'll just say it that way here. Um, I've had people uh, come into my office in, over the years, and, and they'll say, whether of all, all varieties and uh, couples and individuals, and they'll try and get me to kind of condone something that's sinful in their life or at least pass it over. Um, and they'll come in and just say, they'll start defending it. And I haven't even said anything about whether it's right or wrong. They'll just start defending it as if it's wrong but they need to defend whatever actions they're doing in life as if they're right or as if they have some justification. But here's the implication of the defense. The defense indicates that it's actually wrong, and they know it, and I know it, even if I haven't had to say it. 
they want me to rubber stamp something or just move on from that. If you notice, Saul in his whole story up until this point followed the law out of convenience. When it benefited him, he followed and obeyed. Obedience has been the, the long-running theme through the book of 1 Samuel that Saul is not obedient. And it's only out of convenience when he does it. I find it so curious then that the one time that he follows the law is the most revealing and embarrassing moment because when he goes number two here, he's following the law. Let's just be clear about that. He's supposed to go outside the camp and take care of the things that he's doing. He does it in a cave with a shovel. That's what you're supposed to do. And that's what the law says very specifically in Deuteronomy 23. You can look it up. I'm not making this up, okay? He's supposed to go outside the camp. He follows the law. And that's the one place where David is and spares him. Doesn't that, it doesn't strike you as interesting The one time he follows it is embarrassing and revealing for him. He should have followed it the whole time. But what's nice is that he's up against somebody who has a conscience where he doesn't, apparently. David, it goes on, verse 5 through 7. It says, Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Now, the King James, uh, I like the language of the King James on conscience stricken. It says, David's heart smote him. That seems much stronger, doesn't it? Conscience stricken gets it, but his heart smote him. I don't know if you've had those moments where your heart was smoten or smote or however you say it, because I don't speak King James English. But he had a conscience. I, I had uh, one of these moments uh, where I had a real conscience-stricken moment. I've met plenty of them. I imagine probably everybody in the room has had those moments where we're conflicted or conscience-stricken over things. But it was the first church I served. And, and as a pastor, I've discovered that in the first church and then this church that I served, this is the third church I've, I've served in, um, I, those churches, I got a lot of benevolence calls, a lot of people calling in asking for money, uh, gas, uh, food, utilities, rent, all kinds of things. And, and this, the first church I served, I was an intern, um, so I was able to help with some things that people called in for. But I remember the, the last benevolence call I got, uh, it was the last week I was working there as an intern, uh, I got a call, and he wanted help not just with a little bit of money, but he wanted help with like a month's rent, which was like 700-something dollars. And, and he was, uh, had a little bit of an edge from the start of the conversation. It was a phone call. Um, and, and I remember, he, it just must have been a bad day for me. I don't, I don't do this. I always treat people with dignity and respect when they come in or call me. But I, this was just a day where I just didn't have it, apparently, because he calls in, and, and I'm unable to help him. And we have a long, lumbering conversation about the church and help and all that, that he's just kind of a little accusatory. And that finally he's like, well, you won't help me. That's just the problem with the church. You guys are so self-interested and money-driven. And he just starts going on. And I just, I had it. I said, now listen here, buddy. And you can tell this isn't going to go well at that point. I, I had no self-control in that moment, which is very rare for me. I, I was conscience-stricken after that. I felt terrible after that moment. And, and we should have those moments, shouldn't we? Where our conscience gets us and says, that wasn't right. I'm afraid, though, more and more we live in a culture where that isn't always 
the case, where we lack empathy more and more for others, and we've become much more self-interested. You know, it, it used to be, I, I've, we're living in a, a selfie culture, I don't know if you've paid attention to this, but it used to be that if you went to take a picture on a vacation, right, what do you do? Take a picture, right, everybody? What do you do now? Right? My phone's not cooperating with me, so I can't take a selfie of you all. It's interesting to look at, at vacation pictures now, because I'll see people take pictures of their kids, but they aren't just resigned to take a picture of their kid there. I've got to be in it. They aren't just resigned to take a picture. I see this of, of some celebrities every so often. You'll see their photos of going around the world from Instagram or whatever. And what is it? There's the Taj Mahal and their face in the picture. It has to be there. I was there. If you watched the last presidential election, which I'm sure all of us did, there was this picture that went around that I saw going around of, of uh, Hillary Clinton standing there with a group of people. And everybody in the crowd at the, at the line Here's the candidate. Everybody's facing away from her, holding their phones. This whole crowd of people with their back to the person they came to see so that they can record not the event, but themselves at the event. The story has become about me. And the problem is then when we look for solutions to the problems that ail us now, where do we tend to look because of that? Where is the recommendation always? To look inward. For all of our problems, for everything, for, for what we desire in life, we're self-consumed. I think selfies are uh, they're fine. I don't take them, but they're a symptom of the problem. They're not the problem. We're self-consumed. And the problem is we start to become a, fee- a people that feel no shame along the way. So the idea of being conscience-stricken becomes a foreign thing to us. David was conscience-stricken by this moment. A moment when a soldier is facing another soldier, has the opportunity to kill the other soldier, something David had done many, many, many times, and he withholds his hand. And even in that, what happened? What are the messages that were sent by his action? I think Warren Wiersbe has stated them probably the best of anybody I've read in a simple, succinct way. Three things that David's action of cutting off the hem of his robe sent to Saul. One, humiliation which is where I think his conscience was really stricken the most. He humiliated Saul, the Lord's anointed, the king, in this. And by extension then, he humiliated Saul's spy network, which obviously wasn't able to get the job done. They were supposed to be out looking for David. They didn't find him. And it humiliates Saul's army, those 6,000 men that are with him, because they obviously didn't maintain a healthy perimeter around there that was secure. It's a doubly embarrassing moment for Saul, though, because whether David knew he was communicating this or not is one thing, but Saul would have heard this because this is not the first time robes have been torn with Saul. When Saul was informed back in 1 Samuel 15 that the kingdom is going to be torn from him, from Samuel the prophet, priest, judge, when Samuel turns away from Saul, uh, Saul grabs his robe and tears a piece of it off. In 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel turns to him and said, that's what's going to happen to your kingdom. It's going to be torn from you like you just tore my robe. And then what happens to Saul? His robe gets cut exactly the same way. It's doubly embarrassing because of that previous action too. And humiliating. That leads to the second thing that it communicates, which is it, it does signal a transfer of power then. 
For Saul, uh, when he finally finds out, when David finally confesses to this, this would communicate to Saul, boy, God's got the upper hand here. It's done. Saul doesn't get the memo well enough, but that's what it would signify to him. And the third thing, very importantly, is it signifies that David meant no harm. He had the opportunity to kill him. He had his men encouraging him to kill him. Instead, he doesn't. He withholds his hand, and he eventually comes out and and shows Saul that he did not kill him. He deliberately chose not to. Saul is surrounded by a bunch of yes-men. They're not being truthful with him. They're telling him whatever he wants to hear, and they're trying to just convey to him that they're filling his head with nonsense and lies about David's intentions. And David now gets to prove, that's not my intent. Who are you going to trust here? Saul. What I think is really remarkable about this instance in Scripture is that we get an impression, though, of what's going on inside of David's heart through these difficulties, the trials, the oppression that's going on, the pursuit of his life. And so the two Psalms that are credited with this moment in life, I think, give us insight into how we should respond uh, in situations of uh, where our character is called upon to do the right thing and where difficulty is all around us. And so Psalm 57, I'd like to read just a couple key parts of that. This is Psalm, if you read the the prescript to it, it says, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. So he's in En Gedi, in this cave, hiding. And this is his response when he's hiding. I'll read 1, 5, 7, and 9. He says, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. Do you hear that in dark, difficult, painful, fearful times, which direction does David look? Up. Not inward, not around. He looks up. And when we hit those dark and difficult and painful and fearful times, we need to do the same thing. We can do no better than what David teaches us here and look up, not inward. Of course, we can learn some things by looking inward, but that's not where the ultimate solution lay. David calls on God in this moment. He says, teach me, form me. In the difficulty of this moment, God, I call on you because you're the only one who can do that. He recognizes that God's place in this, and David seeks deliverance from what afflicts him in this. And he recognizes that something is wrong. Why else would we seek deliverance unless we realize that something's wrong or something holds us down or entraps us? David seeks deliverance and he believes that God is the only one who can deliver. So he looks to the one who can make this right. And David's method for doing this is to call upon God to praise God in the process. Praise is David's way of recognizing God's goodness 
and faithfulness no matter what's going on around him. It's not a manipulation to get something from God as perhaps Saul might do and we see, as we see him do through his life. It's his recognition that God is the one who can deliver. Things are going wrong around me, God. But I know that you are with me in the most dark times. So I call on you. And it, it reveals to us that praise shapes our understanding of God and it forms in us godly character. It's part of what forms David and who he is because he does this. I mean, how else can you reveal this except that's what's going on. That that praise is a part of who you are and you recognize who God is and then what God's going to do in the situation. And that forms us in the process. People, uh, being a pastor, I've discovered that um, you know, sometimes, and this has not been an issue here, by the way, except at the very beginning, uh, this, uh, sometimes people will come to a pastor's spouse to communicate information to the pastor, which is just a bad way of, of communication, right? Uh, and so in, in unhealthy situations, I've had this occur where people try and use my wife, for instance, say, well, you should tell this to your pastor, and she'll say, no, you should tell him. You know, that sort of thing. Um, she's very, very straightforward on those things. But I've discovered now, I, I serve in a church where both my parents and my in-laws are here too. And so there's always that potential that those things can be amplified because you have more family members. It hasn't really been a case here. The very beginning, I do remember though that somebody uh, was asking uh, my parents, why does Pastor Evan not walk down the aisle when he's done with uh, the benediction? Now, um, I have intent and reason for what I do, so you can always ask me. But my parents were smart enough to say, I don't know. He's the pastor. Why don't you ask him? Your question is for him. That was very nice. It was a very simple question. But it's interesting because sometimes we'll want to know something about somebody else's intent. And instead of asking that person, we'll ask somebody else or we'll just come to our own conclusions. Well, they must do it because of X reason, right? We, we don't investigate. When we investigate, we start to find out answers, start to get, uh, draw better conclusions about why a person would act the way they do. The same principles apply to understanding God. Why does God send Saul to kill the Amalekites, to kill a whole people? Why would he do that? And, and for some people, they, they see those moments in Scripture that are really hard to reconcile. And instead of really investigating, they say, well, that seems mean, I'm done with this. Or that seems mean, I have no good answer. Or God must be different in the Old Testament than the New Testament. Or some, some kind of less than satisfying answers rather than investigating. And part of that investigation, the key component of that investigation is to look at who God is. God's character through and through from beginning to end. And when we praise God, we take that character and we actually understand it. But as we praise, we begin to internalize it. And bring those characteristics into ourselves, too, because we say, this is who God is. This is who God calls me to be. I will praise God because of that. And the more I praise, the more I'm formed in that direction. And we become like God. And the answers, we won't get them all, but we'll move closer to understanding why God does what God does. Why God calls us the way God calls us. Why God would send his son instead of accomplishing it different ways we begin to to understand, unlock some of those mysteries. And we can praise God better. We can follow God better. We we develop in ourselves this godly character by doing that, by looking up, not inward. And David, if you look, he praises, and he praises regardless of the immediate outcome. Is he delivered immediately after the end of this psalm? No, he's still in the midst of peril and problem. 
but he praises God in spite of the circumstances. David remains steadfast. And he reflects the sentiment of why that would be in Psalm 63.1. Remember, he's in this dry land. He's in En Gedi. There are springs about. It's kind of goat springs is what they're kind of known as for, for people who are herding sheep. But it's dry. It's a desert. Very dry. And he says, Psalm 63.1, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. What does he do? I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. What's the source of David's strength, David's life in this? It's God alone, regardless of the circumstances. In the driest of times, God is there and his life water. Second thing is godly character is formed by then training, or what we'd call discipline. And that self-control that David uh, illustrates to us uh, is very significant to catch on to, because it's obviously not shown by Saul. Saul does not exercise the same self-control. David does. David exercises this great self-control over what God has called him to do, who God has called him to be. He will not kill the Lord's anointed. That becomes a running theme through the rest of the book as well. Uh, I had an instance recently where I had to exercise self-control as well, not nearly in such a big way, but we were uh, in Orlando, Florida in May for a Make-A-Wish trip. Our middle daughter has a lifelong disability, and she was given a Make-A-Wish trip. Took us all along. I was thankful for that. And uh, we went to Universal Studios, Walt Disney World, Legoland. Had a great time. The first day we were out, we were at Universal Studios, about to go on to probably one of the, the highlights for one of our kids uh, on what the experiences you can do there. And, and our middle daughter was in uh, her wheelchair because for long distances, that's what we need to do. And we're making, wearing all our Make-A-Wish stuff because that's what they tell you to do so that they can tell that you're part of that party. And we're in this group of people who are being gathered to go into this experience. And they call us in first because not only do they see the Make-A-Wish stuff, but they see a kid in, in a wheelchair and they want to get us in towards the front. And one person in the back says, oh, layout right, the kid in the wheelchair gets to go first. was a little upset at the moment and had to exercise some self-control. As I said, I don't lose my cool easily, and I decided not to in this case. I decided, you know what? I want to enjoy this experience with my family, not that experience with that person back there who doesn't get it. I want to enjoy this experience. Shed it away. Move on. It's hard to exercise self-control, though, sometimes, isn't it? It's really hard to exercise self-control, but godly character is formed by training. We're trained by God's revelation to us, by his word as we, he reveals himself in scripture to us, as we commit ourselves to relationship in prayer, to commit ourselves day in and day out to meet with God and hear from God on a daily basis. We are trained as we worship together and praise God together. That forms us in godliness. That's what does it. It takes training and commitment to be together week in and week out, to commit ourselves to God's presence day in and day out, and to his word day in and day out. Those are the things that shape us. And it's done in our actions as well. Uh, I'm going to enter into territory that's going to annoy some of you, I know, but around our house, let's step-by-step walk to this, this idea of being trained in godliness. And, and how we convey that as well to others. Around our house, uh, we don't do the, the guy in red at Christmas time. 
Um, and so we just have decided not to. I grew up not even believing in it at all, but that's a different story um, that's more humorous. But we just don't do it because I think it profoundly messes with our understanding of God profoundly messes with our understanding of God that we have a person uh, who gives uh, basically credit based on good and bad and that's how you get things and who, who uh, we then condone breaking and entering among other things and he steals dad's cookies this is not good all around we just don't do the man in red around our house but the other thing about it where it profoundly messes up our theology is at some point Kids grow up and realize that's not real, and mom and dad told me something that wasn't real all these years. Could that translate to what they told me about God? Could that be the case, that God is the same way? Because there's too many little fake similarities there. Could that be the case? As I raise kids, and as we are people together who want to be formed in godliness, if we want If I want to raise my kids to learn honesty, guess what? I need to be honest. If I want my kids to learn patience, guess what? When I strap the seatbelt on and get in the car there with me, I'd better illustrate what patience looks like. And so do we as a people need to illustrate that, that it takes training to be formed in godliness. We continually need to pour into that into ourselves what God is giving us and who God is forming us to be. Matthew 12, 33 and 35, Jesus says, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. A good man brings up good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings up evil things out of the evil stored up in him. What you're pouring into yourself matters into who you'll become. Saul, we can see by this point, is fairly ungodly in character. David is godly in character. And I'll note, so that we've said it, we're not going to cover the David Bathsheba story in this series, but what led David astray when he does go astray Removal from those disciplines. He was living an undisciplined life at that moment. When we stay connected, stay disciplined, we're formed by training. When we back ourselves off from that, that's when we run into trouble. And we are unbecoming that godly character. We need to be becoming that godly character. And, and what you see in the last part of this incident, this, just this section with Saul and David is that David, because this character has been formed and trained in him, because he's able to act with the self-restraint, because he's able to look to God in, in these times of difficulty and praise God and rely on God in these moments, David is able to say something that Saul can't stand up to in the end. In verses 12 and 15 of 1 Samuel 24, 12, when, when he confronts Saul, David comes to Saul and he says, I ripped off the robe, I mean you no harm. Verse 12, he says, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And further in 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. You've got no leg to stand on when it comes to judgment if we don't have a godly character. David has that because he's developed that in him and he's living it out and he shows it in his actions. 
that God is forming this in him and that he is reliant on God. And it's a very sobering thought when you get to the issue of judgment that David brings it down to. That day is coming. That day will come for all of us, just as it came for Saul. David says, let the Lord judge between us. Do you think Saul is going to stand up very well in that judgment? No, his character is not going to work out. He has not been faithful. He's been unfaithful, disobedient all along the way. But that day is coming. And so the question becomes for us, what or who has formed my character? Am I self-focused, me-centered? Am I looking to God out of convenience rather than for God to shape and form me? Would I be able to stand up when that day comes? The kingdom was ripped from Saul because of this. He was disobedient. He dishonored God. He wouldn't follow. And the day of reckoning finally comes for him. It's ripped from him. Quite literally, as it turns out. Our true king is Jesus. And we're promised the kingdom if we follow him. If we live into him, if we say no to sin and all the things that are against and anti-Jesus and live as his disciples with him as our Lord and Savior over us, living into his kingdom, even wheat among the weeds right now, knowing the kingdom is fully coming, but we live as citizens of that kingdom now. And so we look at Saul, and we see that judgment came for him, judgment will come for us. Is my destiny the same as Saul's? Or am I going the path of godliness? Where Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my presence. I want to give you a final encouragement as we close this out. We've, we've already heard, in dry times, seek the living water. Above all, seek to be formed by God's word in you. And finally, be encouraged by this last word. In Psalm 57, David is in the desert of Engedi. We already heard these words, but I want you to hear them again. Psalm 57, verse 7, he says, My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make Music. If you find yourself in dry times, in dark times, in difficult times this morning, in times that seem bleak, remain steadfast. If you find yourself in good times this morning, in times that, that seem like you're blessed, continue in the Lord, remaining steadfast. Be sustained by God no matter what comes through, no matter what happens to you in life today, this week, this month, and this year. Those, the way you respond, the way you respond, looking to God as your sustenance, as your source, and remaining steadfast to his faithfulness, that will form your character. May we be formed in godliness as we look to him, as we praise him, and as that becomes part of who we are. So today, be formed and trained, shaped and sustained by God, who delivers you from death to life. Let's pray together. God, you are good. That's expressed through holiness and love. May today we hold those two together, experiencing your love, good given to us, even though we didn't deserve an ounce of it. Good lavished on us, and your love lavished on us, because you chose to. May we experience that true Christ-like love. Extending that out to forgive as we've been forgiven. To be kind and compassionate to those around us because you've been kind and compassionate to us. May we also experience your holiness. 
recognizing that you don't live, uh, your living room is not a trash heap, nor should we make it one, that we have to be clean in your presence to be with you, and we desire that. May that be our heart's desire this morning, God, that we're cleaned up to be in your presence as only you can do, as only your blood can do for us, to give us life where otherwise we would have death. May we experience your love and your holiness your presence, and your care this morning. For those of us who feel distant, far, dry, dark, oppressed, may we feel your steadfast love and care this morning. God, draw us into your presence. For those that feel so distant, we barely even know you, God. Would you draw those people in right now through the power of your Spirit that they would experience your love in a way they've never experienced it before this morning. God, we want to be formed into your character so we can commune with you and glorify you through all that we do and say, through what we become. May we become more like you today and tomorrow and every day from there forward. We pray this in your name. Amen.